Colossians chapter 3 is where we'll be opening our scriptures tonight as we examine and study the Word of God together. Colossians chapter 3. As I open the message, I understand that how I'm going to illustrate the truth we're going to see tonight is not necessarily something that all people experience. Certainly, as some listen in or watch in from even other countries, there are some, even many countries and cultures that don't experience this, but it's pretty common in our country and in our culture, not necessarily for all of us, but for many of us. Because in our nation, we experience prosperity. We have the opportunity to purchase or receive new clothing pretty regularly. How many of you would say that you can think back over the course of the past year and received or purchased some new clothing? Okay, pretty much everybody. Last month even, in the last month, probably some of us could think over the past month we've probably received or purchased some new clothing. Now again, this isn't true for everyone. But for many of us, if we receive or purchase some new clothing, what is our typical reaction? What I mean by that is typically when we purchase or receive some new clothing, we have a little bit of excitement about wearing that new clothing for the first time. Maybe it's for a special occasion that we purchase some new clothing and and we, we're, we look forward with anticipation to that special occasion when we get to dress up in that new clothing that we've purchased. Maybe it's, I mean, again, because we experience some prosperity here, it may be just because we've purchased some new clothing and we're excited. We look forward with anticipation. Sometimes it's at specific times of the year. Easter. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Tends to be a time when we look forward to getting and putting on some new clothing. Maybe around Christmas time. Maybe you participate in an ugly sweater contest, and that is something you get excited about. But that can be the way that we look forward to new clothing. And that's fairly normal for us. In our text, I want you to see Paul uses terms that relate to clothing in a way. Notice we saw last week in verse number 8, he uses that phrase, put off. And then at the beginning of verse number 12, he says, put on. These are words that relate to the changing of clothes or the act of putting off a garment in exchange for another garment. We can understand the illustration that Paul is using very well. 
because we experience this on a regular basis. Within the context is, though not simply this picture of taking something off to put something else on, but the specific thought, I want you to see this, of putting off grave clothes in exchange for life clothes. Notice he speaks of Jesus who is our life. Back Way back in verse number one of chapter three, he says, if ye then be risen with Christ. He says that Christ is our life. And remember that before coming to Jesus Christ, what is our condition or state spiritually? We are spiritually what? Dead. Like Jesus, when he arose and came out of the grave, what did he leave behind in the tomb? Those grave clothes. Think about when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. He had them roll the stone away, and he called out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came walking out of the grave. Everyone there is amazed, is astounded at this sight before them. This man who's been dead four days comes walking out of the grave, and then Jesus gives a command to those around Lazarus. What is it? Take the grave clothes off. He's not dead anymore. He doesn't need those clothes. Do you see this here? We are no longer dead. He tells us crucify, to mortify those members, those evidences of the old. And in this put off, put on illustration, the application is we need to put off those things that are of the old life. If I can say it this way, the dead and replace with the new, with the living. Connecting our life with our living means getting rid of the old and putting on the new. Do you understand tonight that salvation is just the beginning of God's work in us? I think we forget that. Salvation is not an end unto itself. Yes, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're on your way to heaven, and nothing will change that. But salvation, in the sense of that time when I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and He saved me from the penalty of sin, that's not the end all of God's work in us. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6, Paul says it this way, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the question is, when did God begin a good work in us? At the moment you trusted Christ. That's when his good work began. And what does Paul say about that good work he began when you trusted Christ? He will what? Perform it. What does that mean? He's still working. He's still actively doing something. And that work is going to continue until the day you stand before Jesus and you become like him for you will see him as he is. So understand this tonight. 
when you trusted Christ as your Savior, God put the life of Christ in you. What did he say? Chapter 3, verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ who is our life. The moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God put the life of Christ in you and began working to produce the character of Christ in you. And so right here, let's stop a moment. If you do not know Jesus Christ under Savior, as your Savior, understand that life is found only in Christ. You cannot have life for eternity. You cannot have the expectation and assurance of spending eternity with God in heaven apart from believing on Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be saved but through Christ. And so if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, believe on Christ. But if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you've believed on Him, then it is you that God has put the life of Christ in. And is working even now to produce the character of Christ in you. Our response of connecting our life, what God has already done, with what God is doing, is to connect our life with our living through putting on the new. What's the connection? Of verses 10 and 12. Notice if you would. Verse 10. And have put on the new man. We saw this last week, right? This is done. You have put on the new man. Which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's done. When you trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, you put on the new man. But then notice what Paul says in verse 12. Put on, therefore. Okay, so wait a minute. We have put on the new man, but now Paul is giving me a command to put something on. I'm a little rattled. Paul, what do you mean? You've told me I have put on, now you're telling me to put on. Remember. When you trusted Christ, the life of Christ was put in you. But now what is God working to produce in you? The character of Christ. You have the life of Christ. He's working to produce the character of Christ. So when Paul says in verse 10, you have put on the new man, you have new life in Christ... And then he commands in verse number 12, put on, therefore. Paul is telling us, in essence, respond to the work God is currently doing to produce the character of Christ in you. God cannot accomplish that work apart from your cooperation, your obedience, your yielding. And so, put on the character of Christ. 
let's examine Colossians 3, 12 through 17, where we will find four qualities of the new man that we should put on. We have the life of Christ. He's working to produce the character of Christ. What are those qualities? Look at chapter 3, verse 12, and let's read through verse 17. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Let's pray and ask God to help us to hear, to understand, and to respond obediently as we hear his word tonight. Father, for these next minutes as we seek to examine what you have for us from this passage, I pray you help us to hear, to understand, to respond to what you have for us. Thank you for giving us the life of Christ. And now as you do that work to produce the character of Christ in us, I pray that you would help us to learn to yield in surrender completely to you. And I pray that the qualities of the new man that we see exhibited in this passage would characterize our lives. And where we fall short, help us to correct and to move forward in obedience to you. And we will be sure to praise and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. What are these four qualities of the new man that should be present in our lives. I want you to see number one, quality number one, is what I call reflections of grace. Reflections of grace. How does Paul begin? He begins by reminding us of what we have received, who we are, and what made us so. He says, put on therefore. And before he begins to list out what we should put on, he says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. So let's stop for just a moment and remember this truth, that we have received something from God. What is it that we've received? He says this, believers are Number one, elect. Simply, we are chosen by God. Now, 
do not read salvation into this. Paul here, as he addresses the believers, does not tell us that we are elect of God, we are chosen of God for salvation in the sense that God hand-selects who gets saved and who does not. In the context of Colossians chapter 3, Paul simply says that the believer, the new man, the Christian, and by extension, the church is chosen by God in that he is called to a special purpose. But what joy, what privilege we find in this truth that we are chosen by God, fallen, broken people, chosen by God. He says we are holy. We are set apart by God. Remember, sometimes when we read of this in the scriptures, we read about who we are in the sense of this is our position in Christ. You and I don't always act holy. We don't always live holy. We, we don't always present holiness in the way that we live. But in Christ, we are holy set apart by God. We are beloved. We're loved by God. Friends, what a, what a privilege to know tonight that I am loved by God. Do you understand that tonight? You may not feel loved by anyone else. You may tonight wonder if there is anybody anywhere that cares for you I can tell you, friend, you are loved by God. And so Paul reminds us of what we've received. We're chosen by God. We're set apart by God. We're loved by God. And the question that I would ask is, why and how would God choose, set apart, and love us? Why would the God of, of heaven, the creator of all, judge of all, the one whom we rejected and walk away from every time that we fall short of his standards, of his glory. Why would this God choose, set apart, and love me? And the answer can only be because he is gracious. You see, friends, you have received you are the recipient, as I am, of the grace of God. I was thinking again about God's grace as I read Luke 7 this morning. The last record of Luke 7 tells about a, a situation where Jesus was eating dinner in the home of a Pharisee. And as Jesus was eating this meal in the home of this Pharisee, the Bible tells us that a woman of that community came in and the bible specifically says this woman who was a sinner now we might stop and think well we're all sinners and that's true but when the bible specifically identifies someone that way it's telling us this is what this person was known for i mean this woman in that community those who 
knew who she was, knew of her. That was her, her character. That was her reputation. This woman is a sinner. And having heard of Jesus, having understood somewhat of who he was, this woman who was known for her sin came in where Jesus was eating dinner at the home of a Pharisee. She anointed him with oil. She began to dry the, the ointment that she anointed him with with her hair and even those who were at the meal said jesus don't you know who this woman is jesus don't you know this woman who is a sinner and jesus shared a parable about uh, two servants who owed their master a sum of money one 500 pence one 50 pence and both were forgiven and jesus asked the question who do you suppose loved his master more and they said well of course the one who was forgiven more and this is what jesus said in luke seven forty seven. wherefore i say unto thee her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but to whom little is forgiven the same loveth little now wait a minute is jesus saying that the greater the sinner the more that person has the capability of loving and so if if we who have sinned last don't even have the capability of loving him as much i don't believe that's what jesus is saying at all more than the magnitude or the number of the sins that are forgiven is the recognition i have of my sin and the grace of god that forgives me of all sin in other words friends it's more my recognition of what i am apart from christ I'm a sinner condemned before a holy God, damned to an eternity in a place called hell. But because of the grace of God, I can say tonight, I'm forgiven. More than that, I'm chosen by God. I am set apart by God. I am loved by God. And so it's about what I've received. But here's where Paul goes to. Because I've received, that should lead to this truth. I should give. See, when we put on the new man, when we recognize the life of Christ has been put in us, and God is also working to produce the character of Christ in us. When I recognize what I have received from God, putting on the new man should begin with giving of what I have received. Okay, so what have I received? Grace. What should I give out? Grace. And how does that work itself out? He says here, bowels of mercies. This has the idea of compassion. In fact, in every case in the New Testament when this phrase is used in a positive sense, it is used of the compassion and mercy of God to us. So Paul takes this same phrase that in every other case it's used positively, is used of God's mercy for us, and says, this should be the way that your character is. You've received God's mercy. You should be an instrument of God's mercy. He says, uh, kindness. This word literally speaks of goodness. 
usefulness. One put it this way. The ancient writers defined this word as the virtue of a man that views his neighbor's good as dear to him as his own. He says that we should have humbleness of mind, humility, meekness. That is humility in actions, the way we treat others. Long-suffering, that is humility of reactions. Suffering long, he says, forbearing one another. This word has the idea of putting up with, holding up against, enduring and then he says, forgiving one another. Now, here's what I want you to recognize. And this truth is really going to be revolutionary to some of you because perhaps you've never picked up on this before. When you think of all these things that Paul speaks of, how do these qualities or characteristics all relate to each other? Bowels of mercies, kindness, and Humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing, and forgiving. How do these all relate to one another? If you look at them carefully, each of these express themselves in relationships. How do you work out bowels of mercies, kindness, Humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. How do you work that out? Is that something that can only happen internally between you and God? I mean, when's the last time you had to show God mercy? When's the last time you had to show God kindness, long-suffering, forbearing? God, I, I'm just putting up with you today. You say... Never exactly. You see, the only place that these can each be worked out is in relationship with others. And so don't miss this. When you trust Christ, God places you in a body, in a community. Specifically within this body or community, and even more broadly within the human community, the new man should be put on and displayed. In other words, friend, what Paul says here is that connecting your life, Christ, God put Christ in you. And now he's working to produce the character of Christ in you. Connecting your life with your living is primarily demonstrated or expressed in how you build Maintain and live in relationships. Think about this. Putting on the new man, having the character of Christ produced in you, is primarily played out in your relationships with other people. So if you start to consider your Christian growth from that perspective, so often our Christian growth is measured by, perhaps, how much I know of God. How much I know of Jesus. And I'm not even just talking in that cognitive sense, but in that experiential sense. But, but what does Paul tell us here? The life of Christ is in you. You need to put on the new man. 
You need to respond to God's work to produce the character of Christ in you. And how do I measure my growth in the character of Christ? My relationship with you. That's where it primarily plays out. And so let me ask you, what should our relationships be characterized by? My relationship with you, your relationship with me, our relationship with each other. What should my relationship as a Christian husband be characterized by with my wife and vice versa? As a dad with my children, as a pastor with the flock God has given me to minister among and to, as your relationship with one another, what should our relationships be characterized by? Look at and learn from the text. Our relationships should be characterized by compassion, mercy, just like God has shown us. Kindness, humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. These are the characteristics that our relationships should be characterized by. Don't miss this. Living as a reflection of grace is largely dependent on recognizing that you are a recipient of grace. Just like the person who's been forgiven much loves much, when you and I recognize how much we have been recipients of the grace of God, we will be better equipped to be reflections of grace. The new man, quality number one, is a reflection of grace. Number two is what we'll call the quality of the rule of peace. Look at what he says again in verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. To the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. When we think of the peace of God, what does our mind often go to? Often we would go to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. The promise of that condition... Be careful for nothing, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God promises that when we, through prayer and thanksgiving, turn our anxieties over to Him, He will comfort us. He, he will even direct us by his peace. But here, in Colossians, Paul gives a command that the peace of God, same phrase as in Philippians chapter 4, shall rule our hearts. This word rule is a unique term in the word of God. It's actually an athletic term. How many of you are sports people? You like sports, watching sports, playing sports. This is an athletic word. It literally means to umpire. Now, when you think of an umpire, what, what is an umpire's responsibility in an athletic event? You think of a baseball umpire. That baseball umpire is the one who rules or judges balls and strikes, foul ball or fair ball, out, safe, home run, ground rule double, whatever. 
he calls the shots. When you think of an umpire in other sports, it's the same idea. The umpire is the one who rules, who makes the decisions, and as a player, I have to go by what the umpire rules and judges. Notice what Paul says here. And let the peace of God rule, umpire, judge, direct, control. Let me ask you a simple question. What rules in your life? Personally speaking, we can put it in the context of those anxieties, those worries, those fears, those concerns. Is your heart ruled, controlled, directed by those anxieties, those worries, fears, concerns? How many of us have made decisions based on our fears and anxieties rather than on what God would have for us? Think about it. Have you ever made a decision in the moment of fear where your decision was really based on the fear, based on the worry, the anxiety? How might we be different if the peace of God ruled? But then let's put it in the context of the corporate body, because Paul does that, doesn't he? Look at verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye, plural, are called in what? One body. Let me ask you this. What is God's desire for his people, the church? Unity. Oneness. Is God's desire that we be divided? No. Is God's desire that there be schism in the body? No. God's desire is unity, oneness. Okay, question. When there's a difference of opinion, when there's a difference of thought, and we're people, so that happens sometimes, right? I I mean, you probably couldn't leave home today without a difference of opinion between you and someone else at home. So why should you get here and it be any different? You probably hear me say things often that you think, I I think a little differently about that. And that's okay. So how do we maintain unity? How do we maintain oneness? What does Paul say? Right here. When what rules will we continue to experience unity and oneness? When when we select one person who has the final say. Is that what he says? Not really. When we choose someone to be the arbitrator and they arbitrate and say this is what we're doing. Is that what he says? No, what's he say? When what rules? The peace of God. Paul says it differently in another place. He says that we should give ourselves to the things that make for peace. He tells us, as much as lieth in us, seek peace with all men and ensue it, pursue it. Right here. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Man, how different might we be in our churches? How many divisions and schisms would be solved if we would say, you know what? We're going to let the peace of God control. 
We're going to allow God's peace to be the final say. Might, might solve a lot. Experiencing unity is largely the result of obeying the command. So ask yourself, what rules in your heart? Is your life and our community characterized by peace of God ruling? Then notice number three. I'll hasten on. The qualities of the new man. We're to be reflections of grace. We're to experience the rule of peace. And then number three, how about reverence of the word? Notice verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Our response to the word should be evidenced in two aspects internally. Let the word of Christ dwell where? In you. Richly. In all wisdom. How do I know if the word of Christ is dwelling in me? He says richly in all wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom, if we could put it simply, is the application of knowledge. It is putting to use what we know. I can determine if the word of Christ is dwelling in me based on what's playing out in my life. Am I acting upon, am I living upon and living out the word of God? That esteem, that reverence for the word of God should be present in my life. But then it has an external aspect, as he says, singing and making melody, uh, teaching and admonishing one another with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Are we giving reverence to the word? Is, is reverence of the word present in our lives? Is it the center of our lives, our worship, and our practice? Is that the evidence that we see coming out in our lives? And then notice, if you would, fourthly, and we'll conclude, the qualities of the new man. We should be reflections of grace we should experience the rule of peace. We should have reverence of the word. And then fourthly, we should be a representation of Jesus. Verse 17. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in what? The name of the Lord Jesus. Can I ask you to stop and think for a moment? Our representation of Jesus involves two areas and two realities. First, the two areas, word and deed. Word and deed. Think about this. Every word that we say as believers in Jesus Christ should be a proper and appropriate representation of Jesus. Man, think back on the words that you've said today. Has every word been an appropriate representation of Jesus? Think about every word you've said in the last week. The words that you used in the workplace. The words that you used in your home. The words that you used uh, among your family. The words that you used in private. 
Has every word been a, an appropriate representation of Jesus? What did Paul say? And whatsoever ye do in word, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. How about everything you've done? Has every activity today, yesterday, the past week, been an appropriate representation of Jesus? If I were to see Jesus or put Jesus in my situation, would Jesus have handled that situation that way? Would he have spoken to that person the way I spoke to them? Would Jesus have treated that person the way that I treated them? What does Paul say? And whatsoever ye do in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Friends, we need to understand this truth. Connecting our life, Christ is our life with our living. God is working to produce his character in us. Connecting our life with our living through putting on the new man means recognizing this. Everything I say, everything I do should be an appropriate representation of Jesus. Why? The two realities. Because by professing to be believers in Jesus Christ, we have identified ourselves with Jesus and we are under his authority. When we claim the name of the Lord Jesus, we are identifying with him and we are saying that he is our authority. He rules. He's our leader. He's in charge. He's our king. And so, if we're going to take a step back and say, hey, what does connection of Jesus as my life with my living look like? It looks this way. We're to be reflections of grace. We're, we're to have the rule of peace. We're to have reverence of the word. We're to be representations of Jesus. This is how it looks. So let me ask you this. How are you dressed? You look at your clothes, you say, well, no. No, 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 no. How are you dressed spiritually? You see, we often like to say, well, man looks at the outward, God only sees the heart. God sees the heart. That's what's important. And the heart is important. But if we were also honest, we would say, you know what? What's going on in the heart should show up outwardly. God has put Jesus' life in me. He's working to produce the character of Christ in me. It's not necessarily about what I'm wearing. But it's about what my living looks like. And if I am putting on the new man, what should I be seeing? How should I be dressed? Paul says four primary things. Reflections of grace. The rule of peace. The reverence of the word. And representation of Jesus. How are you dressed? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this evening?
as you look at your life, is anything missing? Is there any part of your dress that's out of place? In just a moment, I'm going to close in prayer. But before I do, I simply ask you, has God spoken to your heart? Maybe there's some area where God has touched your heart about your living, your, your character falling a little short. And God's spoken to you about that tonight. So, I'd ask you just as I close tonight, would you just speak to the Lord about that? You respond in obedience as God leads you.